Well, like any week when we start this recording, there's always new things that come to light. We have to be out on the streets covering. We have to be in a position to make sure that we are responsive to our own communities and at the same time live our daily lives. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. This week, um, as my family geared up for a long-planned family trip uh, to make sure that we take some care for us, we also had to respond to new updates from uh, the witness from uh, the recent officer-involved shooting coming forward, uh, complicating even further the headlines that we, the erroneous headlines that we originally got. Um, and we're able to find out that we're erroneous by the reporting of Ms. Georgia, but also looking at how we respond to um, the, re- the attempted reopening at George Floyd Square and many other things that are still plaguing us. As we show up day to day, as the guests you'll hear later on will be able to attest to, you know, we have to contend both with the care of our own families while we lean into the care of community. Well, Ms. Georgia, go ahead and catch us up for this whole week. Uh, we even have even more updates in our continued uh, coverage of this reckoning moment. That's right, Anthony. So much has happened. And I think for the first time since George Floyd, we have seen a, a fatal shooting by a law enforcement officer without there being a huge public response. And the reason why the public response has been lacking is a few things. Of course, those errors, those inaccuracies that were initially reported. But also, let's be clear, this was an incident. The the fatal shooting of Winston Smith uh, by a U.S. Marshal in Minneapolis was something that was not caught on camera that we know of, right? And so now we are all uh, faced with the reality that, that most of us require some kind of footage to to be outraged and to be disturbed by these types of situations. Because not only was that initial headline inaccurate, but from a recent press conference, uh, the attorney for the only eyewitness we know of, she was in the car when Winston Smith was fatally shot and she said she did not see Winston Smith with a gun. And so if he wasn't a murder suspect, If he didn't have a gun, what is it then that law enforcement is using to justify killing him? And uh, we saw uh, these questions asked in in front of the home of Ramona Doman, who is the head of the United States Marshal District of Minnesota uh, Services. Uh, They went to her home. uh, A few dozen protesters asked for her to resign. And and mind you, uh, Ramona Doman was appointed by Trump. And there's there's so many layers to this, right? Ramona Doman, uh, appointed by Trump, is overseeing this task force that has legally been operating largely in the dark. They're not required to have body cameras. They're not required to turn on the dash uh, cam in their vehicles. 
And so now we're also faced with this even broader question. How many other Winston Smiths are there? Mm. How many other killings are, are being swept under the rug, are being guised under the fact of uh, he was just a murder suspect? You know, how many other of these situations where people aren't paying attention as closely or there's not someone, an independent journalist outside of these systems, outside of mainstream media outlet that is combing through the details and calling out the issues as as they arise? You know, I, I saw in your reporting, you know, that those are those are powerful and I'm, my mind is swimming just listening to. Um, some of those points, um, I think they're very important points. One, one of the things I saw in your reporting is is um, that our local law uh, law enforcement agencies are trying to distance themselves from this very task force. Uh, I, I, I read that the um, Ramsey County Sheriff um, removed his officers from from the task force uh, over the body cam issue. And I just I, I was refle- recounting on this with the, on the Counter Stories podcast earlier this week. Um, this interesting, you know, this this interesting development. We, we have come now come to a space where law enforcement agencies who who were resisting the body cams and the when when this move became you know started out are now insisting on them in order to even work with this 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 uh, task force. Um, was it just Ramsey County that that pulled out, um, or, or were there others too? I just think it's an interesting point that I saw in your reporting. I only got to see you, your, your reporting around the Ramsey County one. So Ramsey, Hennepin, and Anoka counties have all pulled out of uh, this task force now. Wow. So, so okay, we have the witness coming forward, uh, countering what we were given, and we now have attention on this task force operating, you said operating in the dark. We have uh, the retraction, thanks to a lot to your reporting, from from some of our local news agencies um, correcting some headlines. Miss Georgia, you were the one on my feed that broke um, the news from the Star Tribune report that started that came out right away um, and was incorrect. Um, so so tell me a little bit about what happened in the Newsday coverage. Well, Star Tribune was first to market with the story about Winston Smith. They were the first outlet to announce that. Uh, a man had been killed in Uptown. There was a few inaccuracies. They initially reported uh, that it was a deputy, not a U.S. marshal. And they also reported that the man was a murder suspect, which was inaccurate. It was false. And to be honest with you, Anthony, a lot of people don't know that Star Tribune was first to break the story that they were inaccurate. They do this thing, and this is the industry standard in, in the media industry, when you inaccurately report something, you are supposed to go back to wherever it's published and add a correction. So on their article on the website that had that inaccurate information, they obviously redacted it. They corrected it. And then at the bottom of the page, they put a little note. Uh, I think it ended up being two sentences. One sentence to address that it was a U.S. marshal, not a deputy, and one sentence to address the fact that he was not a murder suspect. And so think about this. If you add a correction at the bottom of a page on an old article behind a paywall, who is going to see it? And I'll add to that. If you read an article and you share it on Facebook, and then the next day new information comes out, 
Are you going to go back and read that old article you read yesterday? Or are you going to read the new article today with the new information? And so being a Hmm. person who has worked in the media industry for nearly 15 years and, and understanding that this media outlet was simply following industry practices, right? But knowing that there is some some in, inefficiencies in the way that they do things. Like that is the standard, but the standard's not always the best way or the right way or the most humane way. And so when you think about making a grave error of calling someone a murder suspect who has been killed and knowing the impact that that information has on people's uh, perception of whether or not this situation was justified, you owe that family You owe his children, you owe this community more than a two-sentence correction on the bottom of an article, on the bottom of an old article behind a paywall. And so I just felt like it needed to be said. It needed to be said explicitly. It needed to be said accessibly because not everybody has a subscription to the Star Tribune. And so the people who don't have a subscription to the Star Tribune would never see that correction. And so I just felt like it was necessary to amplify that correct information. And I also thought it was necessary to point to the industry practices that these outlets subscribe to that are problematic and that are contributing to the issues that we're having that are further perpetuating systematic racism and that are, are, are contributing to the justification of shooting and killing black men. And it reminded me of what we saw in the twenties and in the thirties when black men would be lynched because they had been falsely accused of harassing a white woman about 80 Hmm. to 90% of lynchings against black men came because of the fact that a white woman falsely accused them of rape or sexual harassment. And those false accusations would be printed in the paper and that publication would incite a white angry mob that would lynch our black men. And then the next day, a doctor would come out with evidence that would refute the claims that would deny the claims that had been made. That's what we saw happen in Duluth. And so history repeats itself. And if the media industry does not self-correct, it is going to continue to deteriorate. People are going to continue to mistrust media outlets. And the media is going to continue to perpetuate harm against black, black and brown communities. So if you wanted to know the case for why and how you become complicit, you just laid it out. You just laid it out. The governor is now uh, requesting from the president some some clarification or something um, around this issue. So there are major folks jumping onto this now. Yeah, the governor did make a call to the White House. And I think he just needs clarity because before this, let's be clear, no one was really thinking or talking or investigating the U.S. Marshals. You know, the conversation mm-hmm. largely surrounded local police departments throughout the country. At some points, we would talk about deputies or state patrol who had been involved in fatal shootings. 
But very rarely uh, have we talked about the U.S. Marshals and very rarely have we investigated what their their rules are, how they conduct themselves. And so I think I was under the impression, as many of us probably were, that they were required to also have body cameras. No one really knew that until now. And so uh, I, I think the governor... Uh, may find himself in a similar place. No one is an expert on everything. And so I think he reached out to the White House with some serious questions. And hopefully he is waiting uh, for those answers. And and hopefully he will make an informed statement on this. But I, I believe a statement is required. I believe now at this point, now that it has been proven that Winston Smith was not a murder suspect, The only eyewitnesses attorney has come forward and said she did not see him with a gun. So at this point, there are some answers that the public deserves to have, that the family deserves to have, that Winston Smith's children deserve to have. And whether that comes from the governor, whether it it comes from Ramona Doman, uh, or whether it comes from the U.S. Marshal who, who pulled the trigger, somebody owes our community some answers in this situation for transparency and accountability. Uh, and and we should now not just be uh, looking to get the George Floyd Policing Act passed on a national level, along with the eight bills of legislation, but I believe that there's going to be further conversation around what changes need to happen with U.S. Marshall Task Force as well. They They probably, going forward from this, will be required to have some type of a footage account of their interactions with civilians. You know, as, as I hear you talk about that, one of the things that, that you have spoken to in our, our previous context uh, um, are how many layers to this are present that we as community aren't aware of. Um, and I think, you know, it goes a long way to the folks who are saying, you know, participate in the systems as they are or or go along with 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 what's happening here, and I think that this is adding to your your argue, the argument you made. Um, I can't remember which podcast it was, um, but about the fact that if you assume that there's transparency or that the status quo was working, this is yet another example of how um, there's so much that we don't know about these processes. And the assumption is that 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 um, there is we, we're getting all the information that we need. This is proving your reporting right now is proving that that's not the case. Uh, you know, y- you spoke earlier about uh, the response from community as we have yet another layer of things that we have to be watchful for, or watchful of, because it happening on autopilot is not working for our communities. Again, you know, I want to underscore that that the status quo is not working for our community, and that's been the 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 marching cry for for <laughs> since sixteen nineteen. So. Um, I, I want to uh, I want to check in with you about what you're seeing on the community side and the, on the on the ground um, as you cover all this. I was watching you talk to an interview some of the folks around um, around uh, the the protests that were happening over this case, um, and and there was even some disagreement on the street uh, between some of the folks who were there demonstrating. Um, what's the pulse you're getting on the ground from community? Well, it, it, first of all, our community has experienced. Trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And there has not been adequate time to heal in between these traumas. Mm -hmm. And so I think that 
in addition to our community trying to mobilize and galvanize uh, for police accountability, we're now divided between solutions for police accountability and solutions for community gun violence. So Mm -hmm. you're seeing community members come to a crime scene uh, who are a, a little bit inherently angry that people are not going to the crime scene where our children are being shot by Black community members. You are seeing certain community organizations accept funding from the city to help the city uh, fulfill their goals, even when those goals are not in alignment with those who have been advocating for justice for George Floyd, justice for Dante Wright, and to really make our community more equitable overall. And so when when I have been going out in community and spaces where demonstrations are being held, uh, there's there's a little bit of of tension around how our community is is organizing or failing to organize around gun violence. And it's it's really heartbreaking because there was such a beautiful display of community last year. Uh, in the midst of everything that happened after George Floyd was murdered, uh, a community came together and and really took care of itself in a way I've never seen. But now you're seeing folks come out who may not have even participated in you know those demonstrations last year. Folks coming out and, and rightfully so, speaking up against the gun violence that's happening in our community, uh, but doing so in a way where it's putting blame on those who have been organizing around police accountability. So basically saying the whole entire defund the movement is responsible for the uptick in gun violence, which I am a person who, who, who really appreciates facts. Historically speaking, our community has been plagued with gun violence for decades. You can go back to the 90s when our city was dubbed as Murderapolis. That was way before defund the police was ever a thing. And so I believe that we we have two separate issues that require two separate solutions that require two separate groups of people, you know, um, investing all of their resources into to to fixing them. You know, um, yet again, uncovering and pointing towards that pattern, that fracturing that often um, happens and is attempted to happen um, with our communities whenever there is coalition or opportunity for coalescing. Um, This reminds me of that iconic picture um, that we get from the um, time life's work going down south and around the Depression time and remembering slavery. There's a picture of a man with a back scarred. Um, a roadmap of the brutality of slavery that is taken and it's made, been made iconic around. Our community has a lot of scars um, that we have to, whenever we make any major movement, scars then become that reminder of the things before and can inhibit movement um, and can redress and cause pain. Um, and I see those the fracturing that can come in the space of coalescing and fighting battles on multiple fronts. 
Um, and, and you have, you have kind of helped to lay out those patterns from, from our recent remembrance of the massacre in Tulsa all the way to the many layers of what's happening now. Um, and then this new layer of understanding that law enforcement includes um, the U.S. Marshal Service, of which we don't have the transparency that we've been even fighting for just to get from our local law enforcement. Throughout all of those spaces, those scars carry with us and they require us to, to have to think about our care. One of the things that um, both you and I share um, is a community of folks and a community of support. I want to bring in our guests today who have formed for us a, a, a not just a backbone of support, um, but also to get the insights here in Bearing Witness. Or one of our goals is to check in with how communities doing. Well, for the folks who are covering um, this frontline work, who are ha- having to watch and, and bear witness to all of this, we do not bear witness alone. So I want to bring in two of the folks who have borne witness to not just your coverage and my and my coverage of this, but themselves have been going through and experiencing all of this. And I want to bring in our soulmates. I want to bring in our um, Ceriso Fort, who is Miss George's husband, and um, my boo thing, um, Alana Galloway. We always give our guests a chance to just reflect on what you heard me and Miss George are talking about um, in the first part of the show. And then w- we've got some follow-up questions and wonderings about how you're experiencing this moment. One thing, the, one of the first things I heard Georgia say was she talked about kind of the lack of community response in terms of Winston Smith's fatal shooting. And I think one thing about that is just folks are exhausted, right? With those reporting inaccuracies, it's hard to get the energy to respond in the ways that people responded about Dante Wright and the ways that people responded about George Floyd. You know, there's a kind of perpetual exhaustion that people are are even folks who who aren't in the streets just people who have to talk to kids about it who have to talk to their children about it people who have to um exist in this reality it's very difficult to to respond to everything in every way you know i read a article a few years back and it was i think it was pretty quickly after mike brown's killing somebody it, it was a kind of tongue in cheek essay the article said in order for for society to really care about this this phenomenon is that someone would have to shoot Jesus, somebody who's perfect and who has never done anything wrong and who you could not vilify. And I just, we see that over and over again with, you know, as soon as someone has been killed by, by the state, they talk about, everything they've ever done wrong. They talk about the pictures of them holding a bottle of alcohol or, you know, they call them a murder suspect, even if that's not the truth. I realized, and I've been, I've said this to folks in the last year, kind of since the murder of George Floyd, a few years ago, I realized that I've just been that angry black woman stereotype, you know, and, and I, I, I have reason for it, right? Because every time I read a newspaper, we're talking about the murder of another Black person at the hands of police. And we have to remember that we read about the murders. We don't read about just the hassles. We don't read about when folks just have their time wasted, when folks are beaten up because it's so routine and it's so tiring. But we all know people who've had those experiences 
And many of us have had those experiences on our own. And so every time we every time we hear about a murder or a killing, it reminds us of our own trauma and the trauma of people that we love who may fit a profile, right? A couple of miles per hour over a speed limit, right? Or have a have a blinker out. Those are things that I had a doctor's appointment a few weeks ago, the week that Dante Wright was killed. And on my way to my doctor's appointment, I heard on the news about this boy in Chicago, Adam Toledo, who was who was killed. I got to my doctor's appointment and they said, your blood pressure is really high. And I usually have pretty good blood pressure. And I, I kind of told the doctor like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm actually very angry right now. I was in the doctor's office angry because, as I said, I've been carrying this. And on, a, on occasion, it flares up, right? It flares up and it, and it presents outwardly and it presents within my body. It presents within my attitude, yes. You know, and it pre- presents in my relationships with other people. Brother Ceriso, I'm curious, what, what about you as you listen to that first part of our conversation? I 100% uh, I agree. Uh, your queen said, I really, I really agree, man. It's like a lot of trauma. I mean, we like we're dealing with this. And uh, I was saying that I have a lot of kids that come in the gym and, you know, it's about, it's a, I want them to focus on what they got to do, but it's a community-based gym. But also, I understand I'm a life coach, so it's, it's, it's a lot bigger than just boxing, but yet it's still what's going on in their life plays a big role with, with how they operate. The gym Ceriso is referring to is one he runs in St. Paul called Sir Boxing Club that it's more than just a gym. So if they if they hear things or if people are getting killed left and right, and I mean, one thing that happened with that with, that, with Mr. Smith, he got killed, kids brought it to the gym. You know, they talking about it. I didn't I didn't know nothing about him. I didn't know anything at the time. You know, so I'm hearing this. It's a brilliant job, brilliant thing that my wife have done as far as clearing that up. You know what I'm saying? Like for the, the sake of his kids and like she say, the family, they deserve that. I just want to, you know, give her roses while she's here, let her know that I that I for myself really, really, really I'm I condone everything she's doing. I support her 110%. And um, that was that was straight honorable, you know, and it was right on, right on time. It was it was needed. On the verge of things, it's just said that the kids got killed, and and you know, may they rest in peace. I mean, it's been really sad, really sad thing we've been dealing with, you know, back to back, you know. And I believe, you know, remember that, that you know, it was a kid. We they going through the George Floyd trial, and at towards the end of that, the kid get killed by the officer. You know, she said taser, taser, and Choose him with a gun in, and no, he he's gone. It, you know, it's just time and time, you know, just ain't been no time to process and heal of, of betterness, you know. A lot of times, you know, you can have some bad fruit, but every fruit ain't bad. Ain't every every cop ain't a bad cop, but but when you got bad cops involved in there, it it, it uh it's like a um a cancer. It it, it spreads. It spreads over due time. It's really bad. It's really bad now because now I'm out here in Miami, but we're not known. We're known for what's going on with the police right now. Man, I go to New York City. They'd be like, man, you out in the country? I'm like, Minnesota ain't the country. ain't in the South. I'm in the North. I mean, it's like, but now it's like, it's, it's sad because I'd be like trying to invite, I mean, trying to invite other boxers and professionals to come on out and hang out. And I don't want to be out there, man. The police out there is crazy, man. 
So that that's a bad rep we getting. And it's it's crazy that they will say the police out there is crazy. Police shouldn't have that kind of rep. They gotta hold themselves to utmost. One question I got for for what is his justification of why that he's killed, you know? So should that officer, they deserve to go to jail. Like, I mean, they would do to me. You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia with special guests, our spouses, Alana Galloway and Ceriso Fort, created and supported by Ampers, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit racialreckoningmn.org. When, when, when a regular citizen kills somebody, the first thing we think is they should be arrested, right? There should be a presumption that the person that they killed deserved to live. Societally, we extend some grace to police officers. And it, I think it may be time to retract that grace. Have an assumption that the person that they killed deserved to live. We keep seeing now that everybody carries a camera on them at all times, now that police are required in many situations, as, we, as you guys talked about earlier, not every situation, police are required to be recording. Now we're seeing all of a sudden that maybe they don't deserve that assumption on that, on that the police don't necessarily deserve that assumption. And I think that if we could kind of reset, and I don't know how to do this, as a society, right? If we could do it, if we could do a reset and make an assumption that people inherently deserve life and inherently deserve to be respected as living people, right? <laughs> By the people that, that we pay out of our taxes to protect and serve us, we would do better, right? And I think that we need, just need to make an, make an assumption generally that the people that the police interact with deserve to live, regardless of whether or not they're murder suspects, which Winston Smith turns out was not, regardless of whether or not they ran from the police, regardless of whether or not they resisted arrest. Can we just assume that they deserve the next day by, by virtue of being a human? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, too, like, it's like the, that was never the police. Um, that, that's not in a job description to take a life. I mean, there's no death penalty in Minnesota. So why are these individuals constantly losing their life when they're not even getting, getting processed through the system? You know, in the system, I mean, they're not even getting convicted of anything. It's like they just, they losing their lives. And that's where it all boils down and breaks down to. Well, I mean, everyone, everyone's tired, man. It's, and it, and it got to come down to a point where, where we got to get to a, a better point. I mean, because we can't constantly keep dealing with the same, same old, same old. And that's what we're dealing with right now. It's the same old, same old. It's like, I don't understand. I thought that was enough. I thought after George Floyd and the case, everything we caught, I thought that was enough. But it seems like we ain't there yet. We still... Yeah, like the kids say in the car, are we there yet? <laughs> not yet. You know, we're not there yet. You know what I mean? We still got so I don't and I don't know where I don't know what the boiling point is. I don't know when will we be there. I can't call it. I can't even see it. I don't see it right now after what just happened to uh Mr. Smith. You know, it, it it makes me think, Alana, about a Facebook post you made where you you went down a whole list of things that are required for accountability. 
that there has to be a certain amount of witnesses, that it has to be a horrific, violent act that lasts for a certain duration of time. You went down this whole list of, of things. Uh, and in and, and Winston Smith's case, I think about how it's, it's missing a lot of those things. There, there weren't a dozen wis- witnesses like in George Floyd's murder. There wasn't several different camera angles. In fact, we're not even sure if there's one camera angle of what happened. There's only one witness. As you, you contrast all of that, that long list of criteria that's required for someone like Derek Chauvin to be found guilty, and then you look at this case as missing that, but also still being as equally important. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what, what, like what goes through your mind when you kind of you look at that. In response to Derek Chauvin's uh, conviction, I posted kind of a longer post Facebook post about, you know, what we've seen, what the threshold is in Minnesota to uh, have a police officer convicted of murder. It was difficult for me to celebrate that conviction. I appreciated it, but we, we've just seen that system fail so many times. The necessity of all of these things, you know, multiple witnesses, multiple cameras, uh, the presence of young children, the president, the presence, excuse me, and the testimony of other emergency responders against that individual. And the police chief himself. And the police chief himself. Absolutely. You know, none of that is necessary for a regular citizen to be convicted. We should actually be holding our police officers to a higher standard and not a lower standard than our than our general citizenship. What, what's been clear to me in this exchange, of course, is, is acknowledging the fact that you all are experiencing this just like everybody else is, of course. But then you also have the added piece of having, you know, spouses who are are experiencing themselves and having to 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 like witness and watch. I think, you know, during the trial, um, I, I got to a breaking point and I just, I, 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 I was sitting at the computer just listening throughout. Uh, it was an evening. It was a Wednesday evening. I remember. Um, and I think I talk about this on, on one of our previous podcasts where I was just sitting and in response to just what was coming out of the defense, who was having to try to make an argument against uh, or, or in favor. Um, I just, I lost it. I, I know I, I, I threw out some curse words. I, I smacked the table. I threw a couple of things. I grabbed my keys and I just left. And before I even came I've down from this, this, this cloud, I was at George Floyd Square and I just needed to have presence and moment just to, to you know, as the, as the healing space that it is. And so I know both you, uh, I know you, Alana, and you, Sariso, have, have observed and watched moments of, of me and Georgia having to, to, um, experience this moment ourselves. I'm just curious about what, how that's come up for you. I mean, Ceriso, you you had to experience um, Georgia being in a space where a shooting happened, and and I know you've had to had to process and, and and deal with that. So I'm just curious what's come up for you all as as you've uh, been experiencing this moment simultaneously, experiencing this moment while watching um, us have to bear witness to it. It, it gives me a lot of. Um... Because I think the one thing we should do as as spouse, I think we should uh, make sure we uh, create a game plan, um, understand like a strategy and what would you do in these cases scenarios or what would you do in this case? 
Um, that's something that a lot of times we haven't talked upon. I think like I be thinking like now I hope that she she um everything works out right and it don't happen that way, or I hope she carries it out right. I be thinking, you know, just these different scenarios playing through my mind. You know, me as a boxing coach, I mean, I I, I run through a lot of different scenarios. We we prepare and we we it's game plan strategy. You know, we we prepare for it, right? But um, and one thing about this, you just never know what can happen. It, it's like un, it's the the mystery of the unknown at times. You know, when you're dealing with, you know, Georgia going out there like that, so. Yeah, I, I mean, at times I talked about bulletproof vests. I mean, I have. I mean, I don't know if she can sense it in my in my in my tone in my in my in moments because I speak about this. I'm about to get my gun thing, and uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be right there with you, baby. You know, like security. You know, so it's like little things I will speak on and say. You know, and I I don't know if she catches on. It's like little bit of pieces. I'm I'm, I'm always, but I'm kind of uh, I, I want the best, you know, and I just know that how. In this world, in this world we living in, you know things can be going good, but it can get ugly. Like, and and it can get ugly quick. And and they, you know you can never control the temperament of individuals and what's going down. I've been in the space where I've had to just disconnect a lot. As Anthony, you were watching every bit of the trial. I was purposely not <laughs> watching any of the trial. However, you know, watching Anthony and watching in that particular moment where. Anthony was in the other room watching the trial and I was in the in the living room watching TV with the kids and we could see each other. And Anthony got up and grabbed his keys and said some words and walked out the door kind of in a in a huff. I just want to be clear. I was cursing like a sailor on my way out. Just a full disclosure. <laughs> he was. And the kids asked me, you know, what just happened? <laughs> and they knew they knew that you were watching the trial. They knew everything, uh, the situation. And I just had to give them a moment and let them know, like, this is infuriating. And dad is infuriated, (laughs) and rightly so. And even as I've had to disconnect, you know, with the kids in particular, we've had to have these discussions on a regular basis. And our son just always comes comes up to us with the news, the new headlines. He's always on top of the headlines. And so I've steeled myself and prepared myself to respond when my kids have heard about it, you know, and so we'll talk about it or we'll, we'll be talking and the kids will respond and say, Oh, the shooting of so-and-so. And we, I've been in the space where I've had to say, no, there was another one more recently, you know, and it's, it's just that kind of response with the kids has been difficult because I've been trying, I've been actively trying to remove myself from that space because of the trauma of it. All right, I'm going to jump in right now. This is Halili. I am the producer of Bearing Witness. And I wanted to ask a question for all four of you. Um, I'm interested, and, I, and I'm sure our listeners are interested to hear how you guys approach these discussions on these topics with your children. Well, I'll start with, you know, our younger children are not old enough to even process what's happening. But our 13-year-old, she she's actually gone out to protests with me that have turned violent. And so I think that she has a reality, a clear reality of what's actually happening than what other kids her age have. And so we're constantly engaging her to 
make sure that she is aware of the the things that she's up against as a young black woman. And uh, it's important for us to not sugarcoat that as hard as it can be to not shelter her from that reality. And, And so we just, you know, we don't, we don't make it overbearing, you know, where it's in her face all the time. We are very um, intentional on making sure that she is aware of, of what's happening and that she's equipped with the tools she needs to to research and and process and and cope. Frankly, because it is a lot of trauma uh, that you have to to deal with in internalizing everything that's happening. Absolutely, Georgia. And and we have to remember, too, that this is not happening in a vacuum, right? Every other issue still exists. So as our kids have been, our kids have been home all school year, since uh, actually for almost a year and a half in the wake, of course, the pandemic, this is not the only trauma that they're endure- enduring right now. And so it's been a very difficult year for us in, in some ways. We've had to be with the kids all the time. And not that that part is difficult, but they don't have as many, as much input as they usually have. You know, usually they have their teachers at school and they certainly, of course, have their teachers, but not in the same way as they would if they were in person in school. Um, They would have lots of other friends that they would be able to talk to in their, in their circles, but they've just been home. (laughs) Right. And so we we are their world right now in a way that is not generally the case. Our kids have been really interested, really engaged and really kind of present in the news cycles and things like that. Our kids actually formed a protest in in the world of Roblox and I have no idea how that works, but it's kind of it's a kind of cool thing that I had forgotten about until it popped up in my Facebook memories about a week ago. You know, and they're they are present in social media and on the internet and having discussions about Black Lives Matter and about kind of the state of the world in a way that, you know, I'm kind of checking in with them to make sure they're okay having these discussions. And I think to the most for the most part they are. I think that's a good, good, really, really good point. And and I think, you know, that in in conjunction with what you said about not sugarcoating uh Georgia, the uh, we, we operate kind of on the keep it 100 rule where, you know, you're going to come to me with the question. You, we're going to talk about it. If we're going to talk about, um, you know, sex, we're going to use the actual terms. We're going to we're not going to going to do the you know, this is a this is only adult stuff. If you ask a question, we're going to answer it honestly and then allow you to to come to your summations and come back with the question so that dialogue stays open. So I think one of the things that 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 we I don't know if we've officially agreed upon it, but we've we've. We've taken that approach of just saying, you know, this is the real. This is what happened. If, if, if something horrible um, happens, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it, but we're also gonna communicate that there is a way to process it, a way to get through it. That's going to be inclusive of all of the emotions that come. That's that's really the the big thing, right? It, um, I what I don't want to see happen is is my children to internalize mm-hmm. um, all of these feelings and hold it and bottle it because we know how unhealthy that is. Um, you know, Dr. Joy talks about that. Resma Menikim talks about that, that if you bottle that up, um, that's only causing you, you need to get that stuff out. And I want to be in a space where they can get that stuff out and process it with us and know that that's okay. I mean, it's what's going on. I mean, um, it's a great thing that they able to um, actually experience it in a way that um, 
we're able to show them this is this is actually what's going on and talk to, and actually we're not showing them. We know, think about it like we're not showing them. The world is showing them. I think it's a good thing that we are able to to um, actually bring them in and give them a little more insight. And um, especially with uh, my wife Georgia, I mean the the uh, the, the stuff that she do and then the uh, the information that is there. So you know, one thing that you got real uh, understand that we. It's a, it's a lot of uh, information that's given to our kid. So I got 13-year-old. She catches on a lot. And she's able to have conversations with us about about the situation and tell us how she feels. And, and she brings it to us about her dealing with at school and certain um, individuals that, you know, feel one way and how she feel about it. And and we, we take it for what it is, a grain of salt. Beyond, like, whatever our way is or how we may feel, we kind of want to hear how she feel and take that in. Um, but I know it was on one time where she went out, actually went out there with, with my wife, with Georgia. You know how the protests go. Supposedly, sure, they start shooting rubber bullets and things of sort. And she she uh, she called me and I, I stayed there. I, I parked and she called me and I was right there. She got in the car with me before everything really popped off. But she let us know how she's feeling, which is... The best thing that I will say. You know, we 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 always wrap up our show by checking in with with everybody to say, how are you being you in this moment? So I'll extend that question as we wrap up now to um, our special guests today, very special guests today. And so um, either one of you can start, Brother Sariso or, or Alana, um, but how are you being you in this moment? One day at a time, just trying to, you know, just see what it costs because what we, what we see in this the transplanted, uh, one thing after another, no one. It's a, it's one thing after another. We you know we have one situation, then all of a sudden something else happens. So we just don't know what's what to uphold for what's next. You know, and I mean, there's so much stuff going on in life. So I say, you know, Dave, I take it day by day and just try not to um, let it overlift me and understand that uh, and stay positive. I think the key with this for everyone is to just we got to remain positive. Like Sariso said, you know, that positivity is so important. And I've been been kind of existing mostly in that positivity, but also spending time with the family and the children in particular, really being able to spend time with them and experience joy, but also allowing myself to experience the the anger and negativity and having those moments and being able to move past them. That's been how I've been able to be myself in this time. I would say by just staying focused, staying focused and centered in why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I would agree with Alana, spending time with family and also making sure that there's balance. You know, I, people always come up to me and they're like, "How do, you're everywhere. How do you balance this? And you have three kids. And so I'd like to take this opportunity also to just thank Ceriso for standing in the gap and, and recognizing uh, what I'm doing, uh, not just in terms of, of my career professionally, but the value that it provides to the community. And as a father, as a man, as a husband, stepping up and, uh, you know, taking the kids more than I think he has uh, in their in, in their lives. You know, a, a lot of times I would stay home with the kids. But once the trial started, 
I felt it was imperative uh, for me to be a hundred percent in, and he made that possible. Uh, and, and I think also with him being an entrepreneur, it's it's allowed him the the space to be able to do that because our children have never been in daycare; they're either with me or they're with him. And so, uh, you know, life it, it can be. Um, a balancing act at times and and you go through different seasons. And so when they were younger, we were in a season where I had them and they're a little older. And so we're in a season where he has them a lot of the time, but I'm, I'm very uh, grateful and, and, and continuing to be me by uh, showing my appreciation and then creating space for him to take a break. Cause so he's, he's out of town for the weekend. He's calling into the show now from Miami. Uh, and so I'm on, I'm on mommy duty this weekend. 110% of her backbone, and um, likewise, she's my backbone when I need help. Uh, but yeah, we, we're here together, so let's uh, we just keep doing it. Uh, thank you, and thank you, brother uh, Anthony. Yep, I just hope we just got it. We just got to keep moving the right way. Like I say, man, keep stay positive because everything comes to an end at some point. We just got to hope it comes to a good end. Well, that's fitting right there. Uh, how I'm being me in this moment right now is is partly an insistence that Alana has brought to us. Um, Alana jumped on in, in at the beginning of the pandemic, made sure that we we got this little pop up camper that we can tow behind the car, and so we are going to see family at the moment. We're we're actually calling in ourselves um, uh, for while while on the road. But 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 how I'm being me in this moment right now is is because of that to have a life partner who insists that. On, on creating the spaces for us to go and to be adventurers um, as a family. And, and, and I, I am, am remembering on the, on this road trip, we got stuck in Memphis because the bridge cracked and we had no clue. We were in hours in traffic. Um, and I just, I looked back at one point and, and we're cackling laughing over something my son said, you know, he gets every now and then he, he gets a joke in that's just really good. And we were belly laughing and and I wouldn't trade that moment for the world as to kind of reset that reminds us of what else is there for us. Um, I want to thank uh, you, Brother Ceriso, and uh, and you, Alana, uh, for for coming here and just just having uh, our backs. Miss Georgia, you're on the front line, um, and it's and it's great to see that you got a warrior standing next to you, um, you know, and supporting you, especially in the spaces where we've watched, literally watched, as you've been um, in in harm's way, whether it's been a bottle or a bullet. And unfortunately, we, 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 <laughs> those things are both true as we cover and bear witness to all these things. So I want to thank um, our special life partners, our soulmates for being in the space with us today. And we're going to end as we always do. I'll kick it over to you, Miss Georgia. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This has been Bearing Witness. <laughs>